Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There is no time to wait, so let's begin. This episode is brought to you by Oracle for Startups. Hey, you all, Chris Jonu back at it again. This is Startup Grind Global Podcast, and I'm your host. And today we have um, our good friend, Chris Said, who is um, an author and a serial entrepreneur. We uh, go through his career, um, and then we get into the book, The Leadership Lens. Now, Chris is probably, you know, um, most famous for, you know, heading up um, Uber developer platform and um, you know be part of the crazy ride at Uber but he also was the co-founder of data, the data portability project and built a company that powered the social experiences of some of the world's biggest media companies so I just wanted to talk to him about the new book um, his career at Uber and um, you know the growth that he saw and the learnings from 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 um, a company that experienced such incredible growth um, through to scaling teams and, and you know, glo- global, you know, developing global markets. And then, um, you know, and, and, you know, he's the leadership that came from, from Travis, you know, uh, given the title of the book, Leadership Lands. And then through to his learnings and, and the reason for writing the book. Um, incredible guy, um, great story, and um, definitely um, give some pearls here today. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone. Startup Grind Global Podcast. I've got Chris Saad today, my friend, um, startup legend in these parts. See, I like that's, this I, that's very kind. Thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, he was head of Uber, Uber developer platform, amongst other things. We're going to get into the story today through to, um, um, you know, the mentorship and now, now the book, the book, which I really want to unpack. So, um, if we could just go back a bit, Chris, um, give me a bit of context in how the hell you ended up in, in San Francisco. Well, um, you know, there's the, the old, it's become a cliche for me at least, which is, you know, if you want to do a blockbuster movie, you go to LA. And if you want to do a blockbuster startup, you go to San Francisco slash Silicon Valley. Uh, at least that was the case. 12 years ago when um, that was really the almost the exclusive epicenter of, of venture backed high growth startups. Um, and so it took me a little longer than I, in hindsight, it took a little longer than it should have for me to kind of click and realize, no, no, I need to, I need to go over there because um, that's where all the action's at. And so I built uh, a venture backed startup starting here in Australia and um, started paying very close attention to the Silicon Valley scene, the politics, the personalities, the, the, the tone of the conversation. And then uh, at, at one point, um, myself and, and one of my advisors went over there uh, in 2007, I want to say. And uh, yeah, and felt instantly at home and, and knew that I needed to move there. And I finally did in 2009. Yeah, I, look, I, lo- I love San Francisco too. I, I like, and I'd say it's like, it's very close to kind of... I'd say it's the closest city probably in vibe to, to Melbourne, I, you know, but, you know, yeah. 
I don't know what, what you, what you, you know, you're from Brisbane. You're in Brisbane there, but yeah, I, yeah, I would I, say that. I'm, yeah. I'm from Brisbane, so what do I know? No, but uh, I think, uh, you know, my, my analogy in my head is that San Francisco is very similar to um, Sydney. Sydney's kind of like a hybrid of LA and, and, and San Francisco. And Melbourne, in my mind, is kind of more analogous to, to London. But uh, I'm, not an, I'm not an expert on either of those Australian cities. So, um, I haven't ever lived there or really gotten to enmeshed in the, in the community there. So uh, I, I would trust it more to a Sydney side or a Melbourneite to know uh, what it's really like. Yeah, and, and, and um, what I was going to say was, so what, 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 was the, um, um, what was the venture back startup that you had? So it was a company called uh, Faraday Media, and we were building uh, technology to personalize the web for you, to personalize the news for you and, and personalize alerts for you. Um, it is, it back then looked a lot like what the Facebook news feed and the Twitter news stream looks like today. But at a time when those kind of things didn't really exist, when most people were receiving their news, or at least tech savvy people were really receiving their news through RSS feeds which were um, typically received through clients, through apps that looked like inboxes, like email inboxes. And our insight was that people don't read news that way. They don't read news like mail. They don't mark it as read. It, it needs to stream by in a kind of feed. And of course, that, that later borne out to be very, very true. And so we built an aggregation system that, that displayed it as a feed, that ranked it, that filtered it, that personalized it uh, and presented it to you. And, um, you know, we had some, some success with that, uh, but then we hit the global economic downturn, so that uh, scuttled our, uh, our fundraising. But uh, I think the, the idea and the insight really bore out with uh, Facebook and Twitter feed. And, and was, that, was that founded in Brisbane as well, Chris? It was, yeah. We raised angel money and built the first uh, version in Brisbane, and then we took it to the U.S. to start uh, the fundraising process. And as I said, we, we were kind of... Uh, let's say 80% of the way through an angel round and then uh, the global economic downturn happened, unfortunately. So that was, uh, that was the end of that. And did you, so you just decided to hang around and like those, imagine there was a bunch of job, job offers going around at that, at that yeah. time. Yeah. Towards the end of that cycle, I started getting some job offers and, um, and found a company that I really believed in called um, JS kit, um, which was about delivering comments and real time experiences on uh, web pages. It was, as I imagined it, an inside out social network. It's a social network that was distributed across the entire web on multiple pages, on multiple properties with a distributed identity system. And so to me, that was um, part of my passion for uh, the data portability movement, which that was a term I coined and popularized. And the idea that social networks should be open and distributed. And so I felt like, you know what, this is something I can really get behind. And they had just raised a bunch of money and I joined the co-founder and we rebooted it as a thing called echo and i became the co-founder of echo right so you, you didn't waste any time mate no no i have to i've got to keep hustling man got to keep moving um and then so so you kind of so now you're in san francisco well-funded you know working co-founder of well-funded startup kind of living the dream sort of yeah like. yeah yeah they felt i mean i i got my first apartment there um you know ever living on my own and, uh, you know, it was this beautiful concrete uh, loft. And I felt like I've made it. You know, this is it. This is the dream. Uh, paying way too much in rent. Um, but uh, it was, you know, it was magical. It was really like coming home to a place I'd never been. But um, that was entirely my people 
my thinking, my culture. And, um, and, and how did it kind of evolve from there? Well, you, you were there for some time, right? I was there for 10 years uh, in total, um, 10, 10, 11 years. And, um, you know, we built Echo into quite a substantial business. We were serving all of the real-time social experiences for all the major media companies in the U.S. and um, many of them around the world, you know, CNN and NASDAQ and uh, AMC and WeTV and uh, uh, Disney, ABC, I think I mentioned them. And we also did Sky TV and Washington Post and all these guys were all running Echo technology on their pages to power their real-time comments, real-time news feeds, real-time forums, real-time um, Twitter curation and on-air um, linear broadcast curation. All that was powered by Echo um, at the time. And so, Everyone. Everyone's using this thing. Yeah, yeah. So I did that for um, some six years or so. And then I got recruited into, um, poached, if you will, into, um, into Uber um, to run their developer platform. Because, again, I had a very strong background in open standards, developer platforms, distributed systems. And so they needed somebody to come in and help them run the Uber developer platform. And so I built that from just a few APIs to a, a full team, a full vision, a full roadmap. And we, we shipped some five, six products and, and really built out that platform. So what were those early conversations? Was, was Uber, you know, already becoming, a, was, were they already on your radar and people were oh, you know, yeah. talking about it big time when you were getting hit up? Yeah, Uber already um, had changed the texture of San Francisco because prior to Uber, it was quite hard to get around the city. You know, you had to hail a taxi um, or, or call a taxi. Uh, and it wasn't like New York where there were just taxis everywhere. You had to just like wait for one to drive by. And um, it was really quite difficult unless you owned a car and having a car was difficult because the garage space was hard and, um, you know, the hills are crazy and the parking is crazy and people would break into your car. And so, so Uber came at a time where people really needed it and it, it made the city much smaller, more intimate, more magical. And um, so it, we at, at, in San Francisco were profoundly affected by Uber. It was like this incredible revelation. And, um, you know, I think other cities like Brisbane or Sydney, everybody's got a car and it feels much more natural to just take your own car. But with Uber, with San Francisco in particular, it was um, revelatory. And so I, we knew it was going to be something special. And um, when I was uh, brought in to do that, I was like, it was already, you know, it was already well on its way to being something very special. I, I take no credit for that trajectory um, but, uh, you know, I definitely contributed to building part of that team and part of the, the product uh, in our little corner of that business. And, and I got to work with uh, Travis and Emil and the, the leadership team there. And it was extremely exciting. Yeah. So can you just talk about that? Like even just, um, you know, um, early days and, 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 you know, walking in there and, and, and what it was like? It was extremely nerve wracking because it was, the, you know, my dream job to get the keys to the castle for the, a major developer platform at a, at a rapidly growing, you know, tech uh, success story um, was incredibly gratifying. In fact, um, one of the first conversations I had with my engineering manager, you know, my, my co uh, lead there, he was the, you know, it's the CTO to my CEO of that division, if you will. Um, he and I, one of our first conversations we bonded about was like, Hey, are you feeling a bit of imposter syndrome about this? It's like, a bit crazy that we, they gave us the keys to this thing. Um, and, you know, I remember an early conversation with one of the business development guys 
where we're talking about making a big decision. Um, and I said, so who makes the final call on one of these things? And he's like, you do. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh shit. Yeah, I guess I, that is me. Yeah. And, um, and so it was pretty, it was pretty incredible. And that was, um, you know, a bearing out of what they promised me, which is that I would be the CEO of my thing. It would be, um, you know, my baby to run. And, and that was to various degrees throughout the journey was, was true to various degrees. Um, you know, the bigger the company got and the more, you know, risk averse it became as certain media narratives emerged, it became a little bit less um, autonomy. But uh, uh, working with Travis and working with the leadership team there really recalibrated my brain for what effective execution looked like, what huge ambition looked like and what um, speed looked like. And uh, it was uh, radically different to what I had done with my own startups. And it was, you know, um, uh, just a completely different universe than what I had done in Australia and what I think most Australians are used to. And do you think like, so it sounds like you kind of had to level up, right? You had to bring your own oh, yeah. game every day kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, it, as I said, it recalibrated everything. It, it, it really changes your worldview. And, you know, from Uber, from the data portability project, from Echo, I got to work with really the best leaders in the world um, at all these major media companies, major brands, and then at, you know, one of the most, what I think is the most, one of the most important startups in the world at the time at Uber. And so you have no choice but to get rid of your psychological blocks and your Aussie humbleisms and, you know, and like equivocations and your, um, you know, your uncertainties and imposter syndromes, and you just have to step up. Um, or step off, really, and you, you had to learn um, how to think and act and, and, and rationalize um, with the best of them. And, um, I mean, like, you know, I, I lived in the U.S. for a little bit, and what I can say, like, you know, I'm going a bit off topic because most of my audience is, you know, in the U.S. and the U.K., but, you know, Australians punch punch pretty well, you know, above their weight, right, like, around yeah. the world. I think we... I think that sometimes, you know, in Australia, we have the, you know, the tall poppy syndrome and stuff. And, we, yeah. you know, we, we kind of bring that baggage when we go to the U S but we, you know, when we over there, we Australians are some good operators, right? Like I'm doing my national pride thing here for a minute, but um, no, absolutely. Australians are very affable. They're very, um, they're, they're not averse to hard work. They're humble in, in some very good ways. They don't, they know what they don't know. They're coachable they adapt quickly and people love them. They're, they're, you know, they're friendly and funny and, and sociable. And so they, they adapt very well once they get over into these other environments. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot we need to do for Australians in Australia to try to um, squeeze out some of that, that uh, equivocation or that uh, kind of tall poppy syndrome that happens here. But once you put them into a new environment or you, as an advisor, I do this a lot with Australian companies, once you push on them to, think bigger and act faster and that they, they, they um, they're right there with you. And so they're, it's a very exciting culture and then a lot of uh, stored potential. Yeah. I mean, you know, so I think that's what I'm kind of glad about living in the U I lived in the U S for about five years myself was at least I came back with that. Um, the think big a bit or the, you know, it can get done kind of attitude of the U S which I thought was like what I loved about it, you know, like, the big, big picture stuff. So do you find that, you know, did you find that Travis's leadership was 
I'm guessing it was quite contagious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anybody, at, at, you know, who's reached that level of success um, that fast has a kind of infectious personality. You know, I think it's the negative um, way you can phrase that is a bit of a cult of personality, but it's really an infectious personality that challenges everybody to do their best work and to keep up or to catch up and keep up with him. And he did that in a, in a really great way with a, with a cheeky smile and a glint in his eye. And, um, you know, he was, he was always the last one in the office power walking back and forth. You know, he used to love to walk around the office and then you would see the rest of the, you know, a lot of other people power walking around the office on their, on their calls. And, you know, he used to wear red or orange shoes and, uh, you know, bright shoes and he, other people, you know, you'd start to see, see other leaders wearing these shoes. So, you know, it was a little bit of, uh, a little bit of, uh, um, people wanting to just get a bit of that DNA, but a bit of that, that, uh, a bit of that TK that we call in TK, Travis Kalanick, uh, a bit of that TK secret sauce on you. But, um, and you know, I wasn't immune from that either. You know, I, I, I got my, uh, my fluorescent orange uh, Nikes at one point and, you know, it's just like, it's just a bit of fun, but it was, you know, his, his personality was fantastic. And I think, um, you know, he got a lot of negative press for a little while there. And I think, um, some of it was deserved, you know, everybody has their blind spots and everybody has their uh, weaknesses, but I think uh, on net, he was extremely um, compelling person to work from work around and learn from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, you know, when I interviewed, you know, Guy Kawasaki, he would say that, um, you know, Steve Jobs was the hardest boss he's ever worked for, but he wouldn't yeah. have had it any other way because it's usually those, those the, the bosses that are hard on us and i don't know if travis was or not right but that where we learned the most where we did mm. our best work and we were kind of you know um compelled to 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 give it our best because you know well for him it was kind of fear of fear of failure or fear of being um you know fired <laughs> but uh, yes yeah. Um, yeah, tra- yeah travis wasn't brutal um or at least not to me but he was focused and he could certainly bring his focus onto you and he wanted you to bring your A game and be prepared. Um, you know, he wouldn't, at least in my experience, you know, throw things around or start yelling at people, but he would certainly go like, Hey, like, why aren't you prepared? And what is the number behind that number? Or well, that doesn't add up. And like, you know, why are you doing that that way? And he would, he would certainly, you would see, certainly see, feel his gaze and his focus. Um, and, and so that was, uh, yeah, he was, he was great that way. Are you comfortable with 80% of your business's transactions being unseen and unmanaged? That's actually very common. But listen to how one startup is fixing that. Hi, it's Mike Stiles, and this is Meet the Startups for the week of August 19th, brought to you by Oracle for Startups. What? You don't sit around all day thinking about tailspin? I guess that's why it usually goes unmanaged, right? Those purchases are small, inconsistent, and only make up 20% of a business's annual spend. But hold on, Tailspend makes up 80% of total transactions. Boston-based startup Fairmarket said, We can partner up with Oracle and use machine learning and automation to finally keep an eye on those neglected little bids. The Massachusetts Bay Transit Authority thought that was just the ticket for its Oracle ERP system. The fair market Oracle PeopleSoft solution lowered manual procurement, saving the MBTA thousands of dollars a month. 
It also increased qualified bids and reduced source to award time down to just two minutes. And with 100% compliance, co-innovation, that's what businesses should be thinking about. We asked Fair Market co-founder Kevin Frechette why they needed someone like Oracle to help speed tailspend management. The Oracle partnership's been awesome. First, we get introduced to several Fortune 500 customers. Second, we get to leverage their existing relationships to grow the account. And third, we get the support to tie directly into their ERP suite, thus giving our customers the ability to leverage the benefits of tailspend management with very little time and effort. It's a win for the customer, win for us, and win for Oracle. Startups have amazing ideas. If you're wondering where speed, power, scale, and connections can take those ideas, check out Oracle's startup program. It's at oracle.com startup. So look, you know, one thing I really wanted to you know, unpack with you that I think was you know tremendously beneficial to the audience is um, you know the bit on hiring and scaling. You know, given that you know I reckon you know part of the job, part of the part of the gig with Uber, or you know they're they're kind of um, wanting you on the team is you would have had to scale that team um, at Echo um, quite fastly, you know, quite fast, and 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 you know with all the major clients you had. And then imagine at Uber, it would have been, you know, same kind of thing, but you know, yeah. twice as fast, three times as fast. Yeah. What, yeah. what was the, what was the special source there, mate? Yeah. So, I mean, at, at Echo, we, we were scaling pretty fast, but at, you know, Uber, it was a rocket ship and, and, you know, 40% of everyone's job was basically to hire. Um, you need to have, you know, well, I had to hire PMs and interview engineering managers and what have you, and everyone was hiring their function and bringing people in. And, um, you know, prior to Uber, I didn't think I was particularly a good interviewer of people. I couldn't really quite tell if they were any good and if I should hire them. But after Uber, um, having interviewed, I don't know how many people, hundreds of people, um, I, I kind of came away with a real feeling for it. And I learned a lot from watching the other interviewers. And in fact, I even interviewed with Travis. I, I, would, I hired a couple of candidates with Travis. And so I watched him interview as well. And... I think the biggest trick I learned was you want to look for people who just give you practical and pragmatic answers to really hard questions. Um, oftentimes you'll ask people something and you'll, you'll generally have an, an idea in your head what the right answer is because you have the tribal knowledge, you have the experience, you've brought the thing up. And so you have some idea of what's roughly right. And so if they're able to give you that roughly right answer, particularly if it's about your business or about your industry, that's, fantastic that they can give you a a straightforward answer that is that is practical it's pragmatic it's on point it's got the right kind of intuition about your business and about your market that is uh that that is a really good candidate if they're able to surprise you give you a new thought a new insight a new perspective on it then they're a rock star um uh particularly one that you buy and you you believe and you think is 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 uh that something you can implement in your business um, the candidates to watch out for are the ones who kind of waft and equivocate and don't have any kind of structured thinking, um, maybe go off into science fiction about, you know, how to solve a problem. Um, and, you know, a good example is we'd ask candidates, you know, we want, we're thinking of doing Uber for kids, um, you know, an Uber that is safe for children. Uh, we want to give parents some kind of uh, sense that their kids are going to be safe. And, you know, the right answer is oh, well, the question would be, you know, how would you do that? How would you implement that? And the right answer would be something like, you know, well, we want to only um, 
dispatch five-star drivers. You know, we want to let the, the parent know if the car goes off the route, the pre-selected route, um, and if there's anything wrong with the ride. Um, and we want to maybe ensure the ride in some special way. Um, the wrong answer is, well, we're going to use, let's use the camera on the phone to detect if the driver is driving well and they, we, they can use machine learning to look at the stop signs and see if they're stopping at the right places. And, you know, we can profile the psychology of the driver. And it's just like, we already have the rating system. <laughs> we can just dispatch five-star drivers, right? And, like, and we can send the, the, the parents a, a ping every uh, minute to let them know the ride's going well. It's like, how about we just give them, you know, uh, the status of the ride just on their phone and not ping them every, every minute, right? Or let's only ping them in the circumstance where there's something going wrong. Uh, and so just these very basic things. And you'd be surprised how few people, I'm talking about product managers at Uber, uh, sorry, at Google and Facebook and what have you, who just would sometimes go off and veer off in the, in the, in the wrong direction. In fantasy land. Yeah, yeah. And... and and so it was the practical pragmatic things also just so you knew that they get down to business and down to, ex, you know, executing. Yeah. As well, right? um, yeah. But it, not at the cost of, you know, uh, thoughtfulness, right. And, and intuition and, and experience and taste. So, you know, the way I try to answer questions when I'm uh, being interviewed or when I'm um, going for a job is to, to talk about my principles and my philosophy about the, the question you know, how do I think about this question? And then how do I think about the, the areas of execution? And then some of the pragmatic decisions and practical tactical decisions I would make in, as aligned with those philosophies. And so, um, and I think that's, that's one way that uh, you want to look for that, that kind of maturity in an answer. And, and then just with the sheer kind of um, size of it all, right? And I, I imagine like, the, the team as it kind of expanded really quickly how do you well well first of all how did you how did you know like when was the next time to hire or i mean i i'm guessing uber it was just like keep keep hiring but um Most, mostly yeah there was a lot of attempts to be disciplined and have head counts and things but mostly it was like just find amazing people and put them in the right places and because we just we need help everywhere yeah and then was it, um, and then what, just packaging up your, your, so when I was talking to, um, say, um, you know, one of the, well, Cal Henderson and, and um, I'm, I'm trying to think of um, the head of director experience, what her name was, but um, she was saying at Slack, basically that job was just to package up the job title she had right now to give it to someone else because it just kept her, her role kept changing at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, how do you, well, let, let's take it a take it a different angle. How do you keep like team, um, you know, um, how do you keep the team kind of the cohesion, cohesion yeah. and yeah. The, the alignment? Yeah. So the the way Uber did that, it was really clever. It, Uber was a very distributed company with a lot of autonomy pushed to the end and uh, to the edges rather, and a lot of accountability pushed to the edges, which is why um, back in, in the day, there was a bit of uh, negative media about the company. And they kept on talking about the Uber culture. Mm. And it, I always thought that was naive and, and really revealed how the journalists didn't really know what they were talking about because there wasn't a single Uber culture. Um, every, there were some, some commonalities, but every team 
had its own culture. Every country had its own culture. Every, you know, there was a lot of autonomy at the edges of departments and of country teams. And so um, that was deliberate because what they basically did was make you the CEO of your thing. You know, I was the CEO of the developer platform. There was someone who was the CEO of Australia and there was someone, the CEO of growth. And, um, and then within those teams, you know, there was this on the developer platform, there was the CEO of the rides API, essentially, right? You, you get to, you get to come up with that strategy for the rides API. Uh, and so what would happen is it'd be these top down goals that the executives would share with the company. And then there would be these bottom up plans that would, were designed to correspond with the goals. And then there was a kind of calibration process to say, yeah, we feel like these really respond well to our top top line goals. Um, and it wasn't even mandatory that your bottom-up plan aligned with the goal because they, the argument was, you know what you need to do better than we do as executives. And so if you, for whatever reason, need to do one or two things, one or two OKRs that were not aligned with the, what we call the UOKRs, the Uber OKRs, the, you know, the global OKRs, then that's fine. You, you, you believe that that's necessary, then you do that. It was all pressure tested by, your, by managers and things, but there was a lot of uh, autonomy placed in the people um, you know, in the trenches. And that, that combination of trusting people to do, hiring great people, trusting them to do the right thing, telling them what the vision is, and then expecting them to respond with an effective tactical plan. Um, and then gut checking that every quarter or, or every half. I think the combination of those things led to a great deal of speed, effective execution, alignment, and, and, at this, and the proof is in the pudding, you know, rapid, rapid hyper growth. And then what happens when you have these kind of speed bumps, right? Like um, 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 not compliance, but on, like regulatory kind mm. of issues that would pop up that you, you didn't even foresee. Um, and, 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 you know, you guys were like, you know, true innovators, you know, and, and, but then you'd have like a, you know, taxis on strike in London or some shit mm. to deal with. How do you kind of like, is that just team meeting and let's just like put in a bunch of smart people on the problem? How, how do they kind of happen internally? Well, deal? well, again, there was a lot of autonomy, right? So in France, there were, you know, riots on highways and people flipping cars and stuff. Wow. The, Fran the France team dealt with that, right? And there's, there's usually, um, there is a, a great deal of autonomy for them to figure out how to engage with the regulatory environment there, how to engage with industry, how to engage with PR and comms. And at the same time, it was all backed up by HQ and NSF, right? There was, there, there was a lot of um, support. And also there's a lot of playbooks as well. So people would, in their jobs, develop these playbooks. These are like living documents. They were not, they were intentionally not renamed, uh, named processes because they were not codified in stone they were suggestions here's what worked last time and so here's a playbook for dealing with this regulatory problem here's a playbook for dealing with this um you know taxi issue or what have you but if it doesn't work for you throw it out and try your own thing or, or update it with what you found to work um but yeah the, the the teams would just they understood their culture right if it's in france they understand how french people think and how french media works and how french regulation works and so they were to a large degree empowered to to play that out i'm sure there were hours and hours of discussions with travis and with the head of comms and the head of uh, you know the the legal team but but uh there was a lot of trust as well and um yeah and you just there weren't 
these problems weren't like, oh, now we, you know, we put one to bed and now there's another one. It was a global business and there was, you know, a hundred fires going on at a time. Um, and that was, that was frankly how we liked it. It was like, there was nothing we couldn't do. It felt like at that time, it was just like, just get it done. There's, there's, and no is not a good enough answer. Absolutely. And then what was like Uber's um, kind of innovation process? Like, or how were you like, mm. you know, deploying products and, um, and, you know, testing markets and, you know, I'm, I'm assuming it was just like, let's just test, you know, small city over here or big city. How did you kind of roll out things and how did you kind of um, improve mm. products? So again, every product team, and, and every product manager, product leader um, could choose their own way of executing. But it was all roughly based on the agile method, right? Which is to have a hypothesis, to figure out a minimum viable product that could test that hypothesis, to build it as quickly as possible, ship it and iterate. Uh, ship it, learn, measure and iterate. And so, um, you know, there was incredibly thoughtful you know, root cause analysis, right? Like here's the problem, but what is the, that may just be a symptom. What is really going on? How do we, how do we test those hypotheses? How do we ask users or measure these, these think, this thinking that we have? How do we make some minor changes in the product to see if that's maybe roughly the right direction? And then how do we quickly ship and iterate that? Um, and so there was no innovation department at Uber. There was no uh, R&D lab, um, although, I mean, there was the, uh, the ATG advanced technologies group, which was doing like moonshots, you know, flying cars and autonomy and stuff. But the, the, the core innovation was coming out of the walls. It was coming out of every team all the time. That was their job. Um, and it wasn't innovation. Like let's, again, let's use machine learning to do some science fiction, whatever it was. How do you make this complicated logistical problem easy? How do you make it repeatable, scalable, and fault tolerant? Um, and, and how do you do that with very pragmatic, tactical, real world answers? Um, and uh, the innovation came from the scale of it and of the ambition of it and the automation of it um, and, and the magic of it. One of their culture val cultural values was make magic, which was to save people time, money, or frustration. Um, I think those were the three. And so, uh, you know, that was really one of the North stars of product is how, how do you make a product that makes people feel better, save them time or save them money. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was the way it was run. And were there ever like these kind of, um, uh, you know, um, the team in, 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 in the UK or whatever came up with this incredible piece of technology or something that was working well, then it just would get rolled deployed globally. Was, it, was there a bit of that happening? Yeah. So one of the ways that everybody had their own autonomy was that nobody owned code in the sense that they were the only ones allowed to work on it. There were people who are essentially stewards of code or managers of code. So let's say there's the Uber rider app, the app you use every day to request a ride. That was um, the, the core of it, the core flow of looking for a car, requesting the ride, getting, tracking the ride that core experience was managed by a team called the rider team. Funny enough, right? They didn't own that flow. They weren't uh, gatekeepers or, or they, they, they weren't the only ones who could modify that flow. Any other team who had any other uh, need to modify that flow could do so. All they need to do was, you know, 
have some courtesy. They would check in with the product manager for the rider team. They would consult with them about, hey, here's how what we're thinking of doing. Does this conflict with what you guys are doing? Or do you have another different, better way of doing it? And then once they had enough information, they would go off and design it, build it, and their engineering team would commit that code right into the core workflow of the ride request experience. Um, and then the rider team would act as a reviewers of the diffs. They would review the code it was as it was landing, not with the purpose of blocking it, but with the purpose of landing it. Like, yeah, this is great, great, great. Oh, just change this, great. And so this was true of every part of the system. And so whether if, you, if you're in London and you want to build a really unique experience for London, what you're encouraged to do is like, well, how could this be a new capability for the world maybe? Or maybe you test it in London, but you know the other teams could then go and generalize it and make it applicable for the whole world. It's already in the core code. There's no London version of the app. It's right there. Uh, and so um, there was a real lot of cross-pollination of ideas and a lot of collaboration versus gatekeeping. And did, is this the kind of collaboration, was it that, you know, conversations in on rides or whatever or was it kind of a leadership approach how did you kind of spin out uber eats well i mean i wasn't there for the deliberation around spinning out uber eats specifically but you know uber eats i know came out of uber rush so uber rush was the idea that we could ship anything anywhere the the the, the actually the underlying underlying philosophy was that uber was just this big packet switch network there was just packets going through the real world um, and these packets would just happen to be called cars and they were driven by people, but they're just envelopes and inside the, like a network, like a computer network. Mm -hmm. And so inside the packet, you could put any kind of information, right? Any kind of package. And so the, that was, that gave birth to, you know, Uber Rush. Frankly, it was the operating principle for the developer platform. You know, what other information can we put in these packets? And so Uber Rush was designed to build, to, to literally put any package in the packet, the packet, right? And so that was a thing. And then at some point there was a decision like food is a really valuable package to put into the packet. And um, it's high margin, it's, it, there's a real you know, demand for it quickly. It needs to arrive hot. There's a logistical problem on both sides. So this is like the killer app for Uber Rush. Uh, for this generic, uh, you know, real-time courier service. But uh, over time, it became clear that Rush, that Eats was a higher margin business and it was much more interesting than trying to do any kind of delivery at any time. And so Rush was, I think, de-emphasized and ultimately shuttered. Although I've heard rumors that they want to start that up again. So we'll see where it goes. Yeah, well, particularly now, I mean, everyone's kind of, I think it's what DoorDash doing uh, with Dashmart just recently, and stuff, yeah, you know, I guess it's just the, the all the, the COVID stuff. So let's yeah, well, well yeah, yeah, Uber also just launched. Uh, well, they, they acquired in and integrated a grocery solution in the US, and that that'll go worldwide, I'm sure. Uh, and then I, I think they'll start to generalize out to any packet, you know, any package in the packet, so to speak, um, any any deliverable in the car or in the in on the bike or in the with the courier. And well, just on that was, so was it a bit of like seeing that the, another way to keep the drivers busy? Was that another like? No, it, it, well, I, I want to refine the question a little bit. It, it wasn't yeah. like the, the drivers were not busy. The drivers were incredibly busy and, and it was growing very, very, very fast. And so there was a constant race just to keep adding supply, supply minutes 
while also adding uh, demand minutes, you know, so to speak. But what it was, was a, an, an attempt to create more efficiency. So there was a metric called butts on seats, right? Which is like how many butts are in the car? Cause there's like four seats plus the driver. If you have only one person in the car, that's only one level of efficiency. If you could put with Uber pool, two or three or four butts in the seat, that's even better. Uh, you know, very harshly speaking, if you can get rid of the driver, that's an extra butt in the seat, right? And, and, a, and a less expense. If you can put a, a package in the trunk, like a pizza, well, now you have a pizza, two, you know, three butts and a, and a, and a specific. So it was about, um, uh, you know, co-mingling uh, packages in the packet, you know, stuffing the packet with more content to um, optimize the network. And that's uh, one way to drive efficiencies out of the model and, and create these um, economies of scale, which a lot of analysts would say, you know, Uber doesn't have any economies of scale. And, and our argument was, no, we can put, it's cheaper for us to move these cars around because we have more of them and they're closer to the, the demand. And um, we can put more things into these cars, which will in introduce these economies of scale. So that's what it was about. It was not keeping the, the driver busy, but I was actually filling their car with more stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I should have, maybe you should have said way to um, increase their earnings or something more like driver. Mm driver centric but yeah like thank you very thank you for that i mean i i would love to you know kind of geek out on uber for <laughs> much much longer but i gotta you know do the right thing here mate and ask you about you know what's post post uber now right and um you know i i know you i know you well enough to say look you know it seems like you're you're in a, you know, in a great place you're in a happy place you're dealing with um probably something that you love most you know you know, helping startups, right? You're helping mm. startups at the moment, doing a lot of advisory and investing and, um, and now um, writing a book. Mm -hmm. So and yeah. you, you tell me where you want to take it and we'll, and we'll, and we'll keep jamming. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, those, those things are all related, right? So um, uh, I, I think, you know, I've, I've been building my philosophy about the world uh, since I was very young, actually, I, I learned, um, I watched this episode of Star Trek, the next generation, which is, they had this, uh, this character who was writing Rob, what she called Robin's rules or Robin's laws, where she was kind of figuring out life lessons and writing them down uh, so that she wouldn't make the same mistakes again and kind of optimize her journey through life. And I, I, I watched that when I was maybe nine, 10, 12, I don't know. And I thought this was revelatory i thought what a great idea you you should write down the lessons you've learned in life explicitly and and optimize your journey and, and and your pathway to success so i started doing this literally with like a pencil and paper and like at, at whatever 10 years old writing down my my little laws uh and over the years i kind of refined this and refined this and refined this um and took the opportunity to, to make it better and more sophisticated and more recently, I, I, as having left Silicon Valley, I started advising founders and advising startups and trying to help them think about the world in, in different ways to help recalibrate their brain the way that uh, mine was in Silicon Valley. And I found myself giving them little nuggets of advice or little blog posts that I would write, but it never felt like this holistic framework for how leaders think about the world. And, and it always felt like I was just giving them part of the picture or they didn't have some of the fundamental knowledge that, that justified why I was saying what I was saying. And so um, it was actually on my wife's advice. 
she's like, you should really encapsulate this as a curriculum or encapsulate it as a, as a full framework for how to think about the world. And so essentially that's where the book came from. I, you know, we called it the leadership lens, partly because I like alliteration, but partly because it, it is really, it is, a, it is the way that leaders look at the world. It is the, their worldview. Um, having learned that from my own experiences, but also from working with all of these founders and all of these major companies throughout the world, I tried to document how most people think about certain things and then contrast that with the way leaders think about those same things and then provide some very pragmatic, very practical tips for how to think more like a leader. Uh, and so it's not a book that's like, you know, these long narrative case studies and these academic research. It's, it's like really very focused and very practical. It's like, most people think about, let's say, agency or balance or ownership or truth or uh, listening or debate. They think about these things this way. Leaders think about them in this completely different way. It's completely counterintuitive. Uh, and it's probably radically different than what you expect. And then here's like four, five, seven tips to just very quickly just pivot your thinking and your behavior to this other way. Uh, and then I, I do that for um, really all of the character traits of leaders. And that's part one. And there's other parts that will come later around the emotions of leaders, the critical thinking techniques of leaders, and then how leaders w um, work uh, and, and govern um, themselves. So there's, there's going to be multiple parts, but the first one's focused on character traits. You know, well, I've, so I've seen the cover and some of the graphics. How, are we, are we, have we done with the, the book? Is it, is it we're ready to launch? What's, what's going on with leadership? Yeah. Yeah, so very much like a, you know, I'm a, a Silicon Valley product guy, so I like to ship and iterate, right? So I've, I've, the, my MVP is book one, it's part one, which is all about character traits, the character traits of leaders. Uh, and so I've finished that, I've polished that, and I'm shipping that in the next, uh, let's call it 30 days. Um, and then part two is about emotions, part three is about critical thinking. Those will come later um, as I learn from this verse version. And so I, I'm also open to shipping, you know, new editions, you know, edition one, edition two, as I learn, um, it is not going to be this kind of published, you know, codified and concrete thing. It's going to be a, a living document. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm eager to see what, how, the, how people react uh, to it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, we, Tim Ferriss talking about going back and, you know, doing the book. So this is a living, living, breathing, which is like, couldn't have been done without the technology. Right. Mm. So that's, that's great. Yeah. I had, is, is I have first? some very, I have yeah. some, I, I doubt it's a first, but, but I, I have some very successful author friends who I spoke to them early on about, you know, should I go down the official, you know, publishing route and talk to a publishing house and just the way they described the process to me seemed in completely anachronistic to the way the web worked, the way product worked, the way tech startups work. And so I, I basically just chose not to go down that route. I'm, I'm publishing it myself. And my goal is not to go on the speaking tour and try to win awards and become a bestseller. My goal is to try to get it out there as, to, as deeply as possible and have it be a, a somewhat of a living document. It's not going to change every time, like all the time, like a website, but it will have additions and it will be updated. Um, and I'll, and I'll issue those updates probably for free to people who bought, you know, the first edition or whatever. Um, and, uh, yeah, just, and, and then release the other parts, um, to complete and round out the story. 
so so now that you you know you're um you know less in industry and more kind of self-managed right and i'm just you know you mentioned your wife helping you know kind of with the process is there a way that you kind of um create accountability for yourself do you have a mentor now how do you like um stay structured Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the topics of the book is execution, um, which is, and consistency. There's two, there's one topic on consistency and one on execution. And it actually addresses this very directly. Um, You know, one of the observations I've made is that most people do not know how to execute um, on their goals uh, when the task is more complicated than an everyday common thing, right? Like go to the shops and and do your grocery shopping or maybe buy a house. But when it starts to become like, how do I change careers or how do I write a book or how do I, you know, deliver some kind of new net new value into the world? They, they get, they get very lost. Um, And so what I do is I provided some very practical advice in the book around that. And again, this is, in a lot of cases for a lot of people, this won't be brain surgery. It's just about encapsulating it as a complete cohesive way of thinking, right? And so it's some simple things like having a goal uh, and understanding very clearly what that goal is. And people, like this sounds obvious, but people don't even know what a goal is and what measurable goal means, <laughs> right? And so, and, and they don't even understand that they have to write it down. It's not enough to have some vague sense of it. Um, and, and then the next step is, you know, have a, a, a high level plan. So you need to actually figure out, work backwards. How do you get from here to there? Um, and then develop the operational tools. So I, I talk about in the book, if your goal is to, uh, go on a vacation, your operational tools are your, uh, travel itinerary, your packing list, um, and the desk, you know, and the tourist spots you want to visit. These are the the day-to-day execution things that you need to keep track of and you're constantly like ticking them off and, and, and following through. Um, here's one that people always forget and it's a little bit less obvious. You need clear uh, ownership. If there's more than one person in the project, you need to assign it each and every task to a single person and they're accountable for it. But you also need uh, accountability. So you need someone that you're checking in with on a regular basis uh, every week or every two weeks, every day. Um, and the more formal that check-in is, like the more, you know, authoritative that person, the better, uh, you know, and, and they're, they're really holding you to account. And just the fact that you have the regular meeting will help. Like just, just the fact that the meeting's on your calendar is, is a huge uh, step forward. Uh, and then finally, this is the thing that can't really be taught. And uh, you just have to practice, practice, practice. You need grit and you need patience. Uh, you need to keep coming back again and again and again, um, despite the daily, hourly um, distractions, procrastinations, and resistance that you bump into. And that's the one that um, people tend to, to fall over on the most. And, and you, that, to, a, to a degree, that has to come from inside. Um, that's why I actually posted the other day, probably the best, most um, generally useful advice that's ever been given is the Nike slogan, just do it. Uh, Cause it is a certain point where advice becomes paralyzing. It's like, you're just, you're overthinking what amounts to be a very simple thing. Stop thinking and just do it. 
There's nothing else to think about. There's nothing else to wait for. There's no one who's going to give you permission. And um, that one is, uh, is a hard one to digest for a lot of people, but it's like tomorrow is, is too far away. Start today. And so, I, sorry, I to, yeah. to answer your question, yeah. I, I basically ate my own dog food, right? Or, or drank my own champagne. I, I actually, there's a paragraph in the book which says, I am writing this paragraph in the, having overcome a bunch of procrastination and a bunch of distraction and not wanting to finish this thing because it's just the last 10% takes, you know, 90% of the time. And uh, I, I'm, I've almost given up on this, but I'm, I'm back here writing this topic about consistency and, and uh, execution. And it's reminding me that I need to eat my own dog food, right? I need to do this, do this thing. And so it, it really, uh, you know, it's, it's hard for everybody. And it was, it was hard for me to finish this thing, but uh, you know, you had have to do it. Yeah, look, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that. So, I, you know, I, um, in the kind of mentorship role that I'm, you know, when I'm, I'm dealing with some, you know, the, the sports tech startup um, cohort for, for startup bootcamp. And there was a, a guy in there and he wanted help with marketing. And um, it was, um, I've done that. I've done this, I've done that. I'm like, well, you know, and I said, well, it sounds like you, you know, all the right things to do. So are you doing them right now? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and it was no, you know, so is it just yeah. sometimes that you find that some people just need a bit of a pep talk and a kick up the ass to just do what they know needs to be done. Right. Well, sometimes people, um, in my advisory work, what I found is people often have all the right ideas or have a, a number of the right ideas. The challenge is that they're too emotionally and tactically connected to the problem that they can't see the forest from the trees. So they don't know which idea to execute when, and they don't know what a really um, excellent version of that execution looks like. Um, And so that's why strong advisors are very helpful because they have some emotional and tactical distance from what you're doing. So they can tell you, yes, of these 15 things you think you need to do, you actually only need to do this one thing right now forget the rest. This is the right idea at the right time. And by the way, this is what a really great version of that thing looks like. And by the way, I'm going to check in with you next week to make sure you've done that thing. Um, and so it's that accountability piece that I talked about earlier. So it is um, for all those reasons, it's very helpful to have a, a good advisor and you need to pick your advisors carefully, right? There's a lot of people who are career talkers. They're, the, they're, they're career teachers, but they haven't done anything. And so you want to find people who have done what you're doing um, and have done it well, have done it successfully um, and who can uh, take you under their wing and in their part time uh, also check in with you. Um, you know, I, I, although advisory is, you know, my full time gig now, this is after 20 some years of doing things. Um, and so that's, that's uh, kind of what I, what I ask people to look for when they're choosing an advisor. Mate. Thank you for, for your time today. Um, what, what it, how do you want people to reach out to you or how can they find about, out, out about the leadership lens? Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah just, uh, just basically go to the leadership lens.com. Um, that'll take you to the landing page. It's, it's coming soon right now. So just sign up to the mailing list and it'll be, uh, I'll, I'll ping everybody on that list as soon as it comes out. Um, it'll be in the next, you know, 10, 15 days, uh, 30 days at the outside. Um, just putting some uh, final, some final gloss on there and it'll be done.
Yeah, please. Well, thank you everyone for joining us and we'll be back sometime soon. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at any event in a city near you. Until next time, chase the vision and keep hustling.